0: So if you have note sheets and a Bible, again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 20. And as, as we work through this book, verse by verse, the section that we come across this morning is once again a parable. And there is a, a lot to remember when it comes to understanding these parables, how to rightly interpret them. And so I'm going to touch on a few of those things just briefly. For one... When it comes to a parable, there is always only one single and specific meaning of that parable. Why does Jesus give a parable? It's to teach one specific point. Okay? Um, In other words, you know, there is a main point the giver of the parable is communicating. One main point, both in the parables, there might be many different applications for us to, to think about. And also, as each and every parable is given to make one specific point, we should be careful not to view the characters that are talked about in this parable too rigidly. Um, Because if we do, we might find ourselves being guilty of of error and maybe even blasphemy. The characters that are in a parable often fit the story that the parable is intending to to make more so than the characters that that this person is portraying. You see, in the parables that Jesus creates, to teach a point, the characters in them re- represent different beings, often God and then a people group or a specific person, but or of mankind or just a segment of mankind. And so in that, in order to make the story flow in such a way that we might know the heart of God, some things are prescribed to those individual characters that might not actually be true and correct for the person or the being that they're representing. So for example, in the parable that we're going to be reading this morning, we'll see here in just a few moments that the vineyard owner is going to be sending his son, wondering if the tenants will respect him. Like he doesn't know what's going to happen when he sends his sons. Well, in in this parable, the vineyard owner is the father, and of course, God the Father knows all things. Not only, it's not that he just looks into the future and and sees what's going to happen and knows because of his omniscience in that decree, but he's even ordaining all things to come to pass. So if we're too rigid with the characters that are in the parable, we might end up being in error or making doctrinal error about the person, about the Lord that they represent. So we have to be careful of that, aware of that. Um, Another thing is that, so basically that's just a caution to to interpret the scriptures as they are meant to be interpreted, to follow the rules that that the scripture themselves places upon themselves so that we might give glory to God by understanding his word correctly. Um, Another thing to be aware about in parables, in addition to what I've already mentioned, is that they are generally themed one of two ways. Of all the parables in these gospel accounts, they are generally themed in one of two ways. They are either about the kingdom of God, and how it is that it is breaking, in into, the, breaking into the world, um, how it grows, who's in it, who's not in it, and what they're like. Uh, what the kingdom of God will be like when it's consummated at the parousia, at Christ's second coming. Um, and then the other theme that is, that is usually in the parable is that of judgment. Sometimes, a judgment on the listeners Sometimes it can be a combination of both, and that's what this morning's parable actually is. It explains an aspect of how God builds his kingdom through redemptive history in a way that can be described as, as really surprising to us, a way that we wouldn't do it ourselves if we were God, and that is a, a good thing, and, and different um, you know, than any person would have done it, really. And else at the same time, Jesus gives it to announce judgment on those that he's telling it to. Perhaps they'll repent upon hearing this message, if they have ears to hear, if they might hear it in faith, and the Lord grants them repentance. So it's an important parable. Let's read it together. We're going to be in Luke chapter 20. So the word of the Lord, beginning in the ninth verse in Luke chapter 20, reads, And he began to tell the people this parable. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. When the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Lord, your word is perfect, It is a reflection of your character. It reveals to us all that we need to know for life and for godliness. And we ask, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would give to us this morning understanding, that you would make your word effective in our lives, that you would overcome our nature, which still rebels against you, and that you would cause us to be focused upon your word, to remember it, and to be changed by it. You you are perfect in every way, Lord. Bless our morning in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Okay. So as we think about this parable, we need to remember that it doesn't exist in a void that it comes in a sequence of events that is currently taking place. It's also contained in Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts as well, with slight variances, and we'll talk about some of those uh, at the appropriate time. But the most significant thing about this parable is that he is giving it, he is teaching it right after his authority has been challenged. That's what Pastor Chris spoke about last week. Remember, Jesus is now in Jerusalem, he is, he is very soon going to be betrayed by one that professes to love him and to follow him. He's going to be betrayed with a kiss even. But when he came to Jerusalem, and we read about this at the end of the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke he drove out those who were defiling the worship in the temple. He had a zeal for his father's house. And so he kind and people were defiling the worship. They were robbing God's people. They were committing all sorts of crime. It was a business, not a place of worship. It wasn't a house of prayer when it should have been. And so Jesus comes in there and he turns over these tables and he sets order back. And then he begins to teach there in the temple. And that didn't sit well with the chief priests who were in Jerusalem. So they came up with a question, whereas they could ask him, like, where, where did you get this authority from, Jesus? What gives you the right to come here into Jerusalem, into the temple, and to, to throw over tables, and to start teaching? Who gave you this authority to speak on behalf of God? Who gave you authority that is essentially challenging their authority? Now, if you remember from last week, he didn't answer their question. He didn't submit to these men who would make themselves his enemies. Instead, he asked them a question back that they refused to answer. And then comes this parable. This parable in which he actually does communicate by which this authority has, comes from. Now, the setting of this parable would have made sense to everyone there who was listening and hearing it at that time. Um, they would have been used to this idea, to this to this notion of absentee land, landlords. Um, absentee landlords lived in other parts of the world, and they would send back trusted servants or stewards to collect some of the profit that they that they earned from the vineyard, that some of the fruit that was yielded from the fields that the tenant farmers uh, were monitoring, were working the land for. In a way, it's sort of like a business owner who from today starts a company overseas and, and, and doesn't have much involvement in it other than you know, like just owning it. He doesn't have any involvement with the day-to-day operations, but he owns the building and the brand, and so he gets a share of the profits. And so that part of the parable isn't very remarkable to the people who are listening. What would have been immediately uh, surprising, immediately remarkable to them, though, is how this vineyard owner reacts. He doesn't act like people would have expected him uh, to act. He doesn't act like a typical vineyard owner would have, considering what is going on here with this vineyard. What kind of a vineyard owner would patiently send many servants only to have them beaten or killed? Matthew and Mark's account, when it, when they the way that they differ a little bit, is that when they tell about these servants and these stewards that the vineyard owner sends in Matthew and Mark's accounts of this parable it comments that not only were they just mistreated but some of them were actually killed and this vineyard owner still sends other stewards to come to this vineyard that they might collect the 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 profits that belong to him the things that belong to him so no you know a a landowner would have acted immediately once he found out that these wicked tenants beat his servant or worse. So that's surprising in this parable. Surprising even, I think, to us if we have any understanding of of, property and ownership. Of course, the other thing that would have caught the attention of the people hearing this story is how similar parts of it are to what the prophets in what we now call the Old Testament spoke about. Throughout their writings, God uses a vineyard as a metaphor for his people. Isaiah is especially prevalent with this. If you could turn a few pages over in your Bible to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5. You keep your finger there in Luke. If you hit Psalms, you've went a little bit too far. You go to the right of that. But the the beginning part of Isaiah chapter 5 is especially uh, clarifying for us when it comes to this idea of the vineyard and why it is that that Jesus' listeners would understand this parallel. We'll read just verse 7 for us this morning, just the first line in verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. It's very clear. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. They are God's beautiful possession When someone was to look on this vineyard and see the care and the love that was bestowed upon it from its owner, they were to glorify God in that. God had blessed this people for his own glory, but there was a problem. And if you were to read on throughout Luke chapter five, we would would see this problem here Um, because this vineyard was supposed to be into the glory of the Lord. This house of Israel was supposed to be in the glory of this Lord. But as Isaiah says, there were wild grapes found in it sin was found in it it never yielded what god desired redemption what that tells us is that redemption never came through the old covenant the nation of israel and the old covenant were never the final goal of god there there were there are there are shadows and types in the nation of israel and the old covenant that point forward though to god's true goal the final goal of redemption which is the new covenant and the mediator of that covenant, Christ Jesus. A, listen to what Jesus says in, in John 15.1. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So Jesus is the true and greater Israel. A, a sinful nation, Israel, could never atone for the sins of the world. They can never suffer vicariously to atone for the sins of the world. The sinfulness of the nation made it unacceptable or made them unacceptable for this role, just as flaws would disqualify any other offering. Only a truly righteous servant could bear this awful load, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Only he can fully represent God to the world and glorify God and redeem sinners. And so God would send prophets to tell of this plan of the sending of his son. And by the way, the the listeners of this parable probably picked up on that as well too. If the vineyard is Israel, and therefore a type of Christ even, then those servants that were sent to it and beaten to it or killed represent the prophets who were sent before the son. And again, if you're familiar with the, the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament, you would know that Israel often ignored, rejected and killed them. Then, lastly, uh, Jesus is represented by the son in this parable, and the vineyard owner is God the Father, making it abundantly clear for those with ears to hear where this man Jesus' authority came from. He is the son. He is the heir. It is all his. But the interesting thing is, is that the people that Jesus was speaking to are speaking about. They don't think that they're not listening to God. They don't think that that this is an accurate portrayal of who they are. They don't think that they're rejecting God. They don't think that they're being deaf to God's word. They they disagree with Jesus' assessment of them. They don't think that they are rejecting God's messengers, the prophets, yet they perceived that he was actually still speaking about them. If you sneak down and take a look at verse 19, there in Luke chapter um, 20, we're told that the scribes and the Pharisees knew that Jesus was talking about them as he told this parable. And he started, uh, and and from that, they started plotting as to ways they could trap him, that they might, uh, you know, get rid of him. Jesus' indictment is for the hardness of his own people's hearts to the word of God to the message of God, to the prophets of God, and ultimately to the beloved son in his ministry. They're rejecting God, but they do not perceive it, even in the face of warning. He, they knew they were talking about him, but they didn't agree with what he was saying. Now, it would be really easy for us, who live now 2,000 years-ish from the cross, and to comment on their blindness and criticize these people that, that lived so long ago. But could not the same thing be said for us today? It can be said in large measure about so many Christian churches today. For 2,000 years, we've had the Word of God faithfully proclaimed to us through generations, with God even working very significantly in the lives of people to preserve the church. But at the same time, we can say here in the West, especially today in our in 2017 that we've been blind to our sin, we have been bold in our rejection of God. All over Western culture today, we see this prevalent and progressing rejection of God and His Word, and of His Son, and of His Gospel. This passage is just as relevant to us today as it was for these uh, religious people who, and, and not that religion is bad, religion is not bad, but there is bad religion, And so that these people who consider themselves to be followers of God, it is significant for them, it is significant for us today as well. I'd like to um, draw your attention to four things that we learn from this passage. One is about our sin. Another is about our God. Three, about final judgment. And then lastly, about the kingdom of God. And I put that outline even on your note sheets to make it even easier for you to hopefully try to see that. I want us to learn something about our sin. I want us to learn what this passage teaches us about God because it shows us God's patience and His great love, the great manner of love that He has. And I want us to see what this passage teaches about certain judgment and then about the kingdom victory that is coming. So let's look at these things together. First, What does this passage teach us about our sin? These people did not believe they were rejecting God and his word. In fact, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were part of what we would probably call like a conservative resurgence of their day. They viewed themselves as the people on planet Earth who were the most attentive to, who were the most careful to observe the word of God, to be most respectful of God's word. And yet, when God sent his own son, the very Messiah, the very heir, they reject him. In just hours after Jesus has spoken these final words in the final week of his earthly ministry prior to his crucifixion, in just hours after he told this parable, he is going to be on the cross dying for sin. Why? In part because his own people rejected him. What does John say in the first chapter of the gospel that he wrote? He says that he, meaning Jesus, came to his own, but his own received him not. That's verse 12. They they did not realize their sin, and they did not recognize the message of God. And they rejected God, and they rejected God's word, and they rejected Christ. But church, do we understand the state of our own hearts? Do we understand the predicament and the profound need for forgiveness that we all have and that the people in our community all share in? Do we often realize how it is that we are in the grip of the spirit of this age or the lust of the flesh, and we are rejecting God without even knowing it? In our culture today, Christianity is often looked upon by the media and secular society as narrow and bigoted. It's looked upon as ignorant and irrational. The world looks at Christianity, and we look narrow and bigoted in our morality. The world looks at Christianity, and we looked ignorant and irrational in our claims of an absolute truth of God's word. Of course, you know God told us it would be like this, so we take heart. But at a very rapid pace, it would seem, true Christians are being ostracized. And very often, people can profess to be Christians, and especially this is true for young people who are growing up in this this acid of this worldview that lacks any biblical authority and foundation, and they can be deeply influenced by it and give way to thinking of the world. Things that Christianity, which the Bible, which Jesus which the doctrine of the church has condemned as immoral for centuries, uniformly are looked upon by this culture as an expression of narrow-minded bigotry. And even professing Christians can be shaken up by this. They can be influenced by this. Just, just this past week, actually, a, a perfect example of this showed up in the news. Um, there was a, a rather large group of respected evangelical leaders, they that drafted a public document and they made it public just this last week. It's called the Nashville Statement. And many, you know, well-known evangelical leaders signed it. It's not like just a Baptist thing or a Presbyterian thing or Methodist thing. It's many different leaders from many different denominations came together, formed this statement and put their names to it. Men like John MacArthur, who doesn't, you know, generally sign his name on stuff very, very fast. R.C. Sproul. But I think every seminary president from the SBC has signed it as well. Many, So many well-known people. And I would encourage you to take a look at this Nashville statement later on when you go home this afternoon. What it is is 14 affirmations and 14 denials of what constitute biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, biblical marriage, and biblical sexual morality. Now we can make the case that you know, such a large ecclesiastical document like that isn't really accomplishing a whole lot of good. Um, and 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 that might be the case. I mean, it is definitely saying this is what we believe, but that's kind of just a the thing. There's nothing really new or radical about the things that are said in it. It basically confesses those things that the church has confessed for the last 2,000 years concerning those topics. But from the... The response from what we might call progressive Christianity and the secular media, who, by the way, uh, seem to be in a hundred percent in agreement upon everything, which is which is very weird, right? Friendship with the world is, is what? Enmity with God. Well, the response from them has been swift and condemning. If you look up the, the Nashville Statement, if you just Google it, probably what will come up before the Nashville Statement are all the responses and the articles opposed to it and against it first, even, I, w- I would think. Um, there's no shortage of essays and articles that condemn the signatories of, that condemn the truth that it proclaims, that it affirms, and that it denies. It would seem, and there's even been like multiple statements drafted that explain a different position. That's why I'm saying like statements might not be all that beneficial. What do they really mean? But you would think that um, for professing or for progressive Christians in our increasingly secular society to simply believe what the Bible teaches means that you are a bigot. It means that you are ignorant and closed-minded and behind the times. But my friends, you, you cannot embrace that outlook on life and embrace the rule of God, the authority of Scripture. This is why so many people in our day have this attitude that says, well, you know, I believe God, I'm a Christian, but I, I don't embrace the Bible as finally authoritative. I understand that the Bible can get some things wrong here and there. It's an old book. It needs to be updated from time to time. That's what they think. That's what these progressive Christians think, and the secular media thinks. Media thinks they're fine with us, in so much as we don't tell people what the Bible says. But Christ and His Word, the Scriptures, they do not change. You cannot keep Christ and reject His Word. You cannot abandon the Scriptures without rejecting Christ and you cannot receive the authority of Christ while at the same time rejecting the authority of his scripture. The authority of Christ is expressed in his word, and what his word says, he says. If we reject the one, we reject the other. I've probably talked about this before. I I don't like the red-letter Bibles all so much. I got a new Bible that doesn't have any red letters in it, and I'm glad about that because in a very real sense, every word that is in here is Jesus' words. Jesus is God. All of the scriptures are breathed out by God and profitable for doctrine, teaching, or doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So those red letter Bibles, they're they're fine. I'm not saying get a new one. They just they they're those words are for the most part, except for the verses in the book of Revelation that are read. But the ones in the gospel accounts, they're just the words that Jesus spoke while he was on here on his earthly ministry. But all of these words are Jesus' words. They're all he is God. This whole book is God's word. And if we reject the one, if we reject scripture, then we reject Jesus. And yet the spirit of this age tempts us to want to say, yes, we're Christians, but we don't accept this authority. We're under the same temptations that the people that Jesus was talking to 2,000 years ago. And of course, it's, it's uh, it's not just the world. It's also the flesh that we're up against. It's a spiritual battle that Christians even find themselves in. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this passage, uh, talks about the way our own desires reject God and his word. And I love the phrase that he says. He says, if we could pull God down from his throne, we would. What he he means is that sometimes there are things which we want that are against God's word and against his authority, and, and we want them. And our desires for those things and for the pleasures they bring are greater than our desires for the, for, and our joy in God, in Christ, through the gospel. And so we go after those things. And when we do, we show that we're rejecting God. We're trying to pull him down from his, his throne and show that it is us who has authority. We're rejecting his word. We're rejecting him. And we can never minimize these things, friends. We need to expose them to the light, repent of them, and then rest in God's forgiveness. And of course, the Bible says it's not only the world and the flesh, but also it's the devil who seeks to sift us like wheat so that we will be blind to the judgment that is coming, and so that we will reject the authority of God. Do you you realize the struggle that is going on in this world, in this room, in the hearts and lives of the very people who are sitting next to us, Will we embrace the word of God and therefore the authority of God? Will we we receive him and submit to him or will we reject him? The passage here in Luke 20 shows us our sin, the state of our hearts and our need for forgiveness. Secondly, it shows us God's patience and great love, doesn't it? Isn't, Isn't the vineyard owner so different than us? so much more merciful than we are. That's not to say that his mercy won't ever run out, right? We see that in the parable even. But over and over, this landlord sends servants. One servant is sent, mistreated, and then sent back. Another servant is sent, mistreated, and then sent back. Another servant is sent, mistreated, and then sent back again, and and again, the, the other gospel accounts say that some of these servants, there were more than just three, and some of them were beaten. They were, they were killed even. And this landlord kept sending them over and over again. The landlord was still patient with them. And Jesus has a point in showing us this. He's trying to show us, he's trying to show you the patience and the forbearance, the mercy of God with sinners, he is long-suffering in dealing with us in our sin. There is a, there's a reason that John 3.16 is so adored by the church. We're told in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This, this great love with which God loves us makes it so that all the believing ones will not perish. But have eternal life. And even more, it's not as if God was making this plan up as he went along. Jesus in this short parable, is explaining all of redemptive history and then foretelling of his own death. Even you know in the garden when Adam and Eve first sin, God comes in and he pronounces curses on them for failing to keep the covenant that Adam was assigned to. But then in that, he also announces the gospel that there would be a son that would redeem them, that would crush the head of the serpent. And that that same message was announced all throughout history, that there would be a a redeemer, that God would save his people. And that happened throughout all the the ages. Um, But the people rejected those with this message. And now here is God the Son, taking on a human nature, that he might be the prophet, that he might be the priest that he might be the king of God's people. And will the people receive him? No. Just like the others sent to proclaim him, he too would be rejected. He had come to Jerusalem at this very time to die. That's the, that is the whole reason that he is there at this time, to die as an atoning sacrifice crushed by the Father for our sin. It was ordained Of God for it to happen in this manner this is the covenant of redemption this agreement between the Godhead to redeem mankind coming to fruition Jesus ordained to be rejected and die but in this very same act church is our salvation The Apostle Peter, in his his famous sermon in Acts chapter 2, when when 3,000 people at that moment came to know the Lord, they repented of their sins. In that sermon, he says, This Jesus, delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed by the hands of lawless men. This is the definite plan of God to happen in this manner. That's exactly what this parable is predicting. And Jesus is showing you The holiness, the righteousness, the kindness, the patience, the forbearance, the forgiveness, and of course, the great love of God in this passage to encourage you to run to him when you realize who you are and what you've done and what you deserve. He's showing you your great need. He's showing you what your God is like. It's amazing. So we see our sin in this passage. We see God's patience in this passage. And third, we also see certain judgment in this passage. If you look down at at verse 15, after the the son is thrown out of the vineyard and killed, Jesus asks the question, uh, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And, And the answer he gives is, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. In Matthew's account, the people themselves answer the question and they say the same thing, but in a more harsh manner even. They are able to to tell that these tenants are wicked. And so they say he will put those wretches to a miserable death. The people who he's talking about that are doing that, they say that about themselves. So do we understand the certain judgment that Jesus is teaching about here? Do we understand the judgment of God comes on those who reject the Lord and who reject the gospel? You know there there are many people today who who and many people even in Christian pulpits who want to assure you that that is not the case. That there is no judgment, there is no hell, there is no wrath of God. God's love is is so much greater. There are churches that would teach that from the pulpit and deceive people they'll say peace peace and they'll say no one will fall under final judgment but Jesus says that judgment is certain now I ask you a question who are you going to believe are you going to believe Jesus or anyone who dares to contradict him that is our choice and notice what that what Jesus is doing here in his love He's lifting up the veil of the future, and he's saying to you, I want you to see what is going to happen to all those who reject me and who reject the gospel. He doesn't have to tell us so plainly. He could have left it for us to figure it out. Thankfully, he didn't, because what we know of our fallen nature is we never would have figured it out on ourselves. He shows us what is coming because he knows it is easy to look at this life and think, I'm going to be fine with my sin." I'm not that bad. I'm going to prosper in my sin. I'm going to be happy in it. There are going to be no eternal consequences for my sin. He knows how easy it is for us to think like that. And so he lifts this veil of the future and he says, I want to show you what is going to happen to all who reject me. And he does this because of his love and because of his kindness and all for the glory of God. But fourth and finally... I want you to see the, the victory of the kingdom of God in this passage. At the end of the story, notice first in verse 16 and then in verse 18 that Jesus indicates that the kingdom is going to prevail no matter what these wicked tenants do. You know, they killed all of the prof- all of the prophets, all of the people that were sent. They're even going to kill the son. But that doesn't mean that they're going to be victorious. If the wicked tenants have rejected the service and the son, then the field will be taken away from them and it will be given to others. Possibly, you know, Jesus could be thinking of the Gentile inclusion in that manner. But I think more rightly, he's speaking of the, the abolishment of the old covenant and the, the abrogation of the new covenant. And so we're told in these verses that, elu- that alludes not only to Psalm 118, but also to Isaiah 8 and Daniel chapter 2, and it's quoted in 1 Timothy 2 as well. That everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That language comes straight from this kingdom of God language in Isaiah and Daniel, in which these prophets, Isaiah and Daniel, make it clear that God's kingdom is going to be established. And you know, think about the the times that Daniel and Isaiah lived in. Were they times in times of prosper for the nation of Israel? No, they weren't. They, they announced this king victory when God's people were being persecuted, when they were being crushed. It's going to be established, his kingdom, that is. It's not going to be overthrown. In fact, anyone who rejects it, and namely the cornerstone of it, who is Christ Jesus, is ultimately going to stumble over it and be crushed by it. In other words, Jesus is saying that the kingdom is going to prevail, that Christ will have victory. In mankind's rejection of the gospel, what is not at stake is whether or not God's kingdom will prevail. We know that neither death nor Hades can prevail against it. What is at stake is whether or not we will enjoy the inheritance of God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom will prevail. Why will it prevail? Why can I stand here with confidence without batting an eye and say that God's kingdom will prevail, that Christ will come again, that he will usher in an eternal age which consists of unmatched joy for those that love him and unmatched anguish for those that hate him? Well, it's because Christ was crucified, as the scriptures proclaim It's because that temple that was torn down was built up again in three days, as just as Scripture proclaimed. It is because on the cross, Jesus died for sin, and God accepted his sacrifice and raised him from the dead. You can visit the graves of key central religious figures throughout history today, and you can see their remains. And you could do that all over the world. Just the other day, Milo, a friend of mine, sent me a picture of this place where Gandhi's ashes have been laid. And so we talked for a minute about how you can't do that with Jesus. You can go to the place where his body was laid, but there is no body there now. He's not there in that tomb anymore. He has a glorified body that still reflects the scars that he earned for us. But the point is this. Our God lives Death couldn't defeat him. The grave couldn't hold him. When he was on the cross, he proclaimed, it is finished. And it was. The kingdom will prevail. We're going going to observe the Lord's Supper here this morning together. And I'm glad that we're doing it in conjunction with the text in Luke this morning. Um, it's It's a perfect time for it. This parable makes us consider the atonement that Christ made for us that Jesus died to atone for our sins, to make propitiation for us, that our sins would be forgiven. He lived a sinless life, died and then rose again to fulfill the covenant of redemption between God the Father himself, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that mankind would be saved through the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant. You see, there is no new covenant There is no salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from the atoning work of Christ. Well, in addition to God's word, which helps us to know and remember the atonement made in Christ's death, and by that, the gospel, he also left us with a means of grace, a holy ordinance by which we may remember the gospel and Jesus' atoning work. We call it the Lord's Supper, we call it the Lord's Table, or Communion, and what it is, in fact is a covenant meal. It's a meal that we share together that reminds us of the promises of God to the many that Christ atoned for. It's a meal which proclaims the covenant that we are in with God, the new covenant. It is the word of God in visible form, similarly to how Jesus is the word of God in visible form. That's why Jesus, when he was there in his earthly ministry, he would tell people that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. He wasn't speaking of his literal flesh and blood at that moment. It's obvious that he was speaking of signs, especially when we consider the institution of this covenant meal. It's in all the gospels, I believe. I'm going to read it from Mark chapter 14, 22 through 25. You can look there as well. It's just a little bit to the left if you're still in Luke. <clears throat> so the institution of this of this covenant meal Um, We read about it here at verse 22. It says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom. So you see, the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. It's the word of God in visible form, and our observant, observance of it is to proclaim our participation in the covenant, that we know and believe and have been changed by God and his gospel, and to anticipate then Christ's return, which is which is guaranteed because of his sacrifice was accepted and he was risen from the grave by God the Father. Because of these things, we know who this covenant meal is for. And it's not for everyone. If you are one that it's not for, as I'll explain, let this be a learning moment for you. Remember, it is the word of God in visible form. Talk to those next to you who do take it. Or parents, you know, teach your children what this means and what it signifies. So, this covenant meal is for every person who is in the new covenant. For every person who is a committed, baptized believer. Why do I say baptized? Because when a person is born again and believes the gospel, they in faith, after believing, are baptized in water. Now, if the Lord has saved you, but there hasn't been an opportunity for you to be baptized yet, then please do partake of these elements. But if you're considering yourself a Christian, and you have not, and you've neglected to be baptized, then this covenant meal is probably not for you it is possible that there is something there and you should discuss that matter with an elder with a pastor Uh, the apostle paul offers warnings in first corinthians to not take this meal in an unworthy manner that we should examine ourselves before taking part in it why because in that examination we are considering if we are actually in the new covenant if we are covered by christ's blood by his atoning work We are considering the gospel and our faith. And taking this meal in an unworthy manner, Scripture tells us, makes you guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's only for those who are members of the church, members of the body of Christ, because it is only those who are the new covenant. With that said, you don't have to be a member of this church specifically to take it. Um, You have to simply be a member of the church universal, someone who has been born again and is therefore trusting in Christ for salvation. And there's one last instructive word that I would offer about it. This covenant meal isn't for people without sin. As God's covenant people, we will struggle against the flesh until our death or until Christ returns. And it's not your obedience which makes you worthy to partake of this covenant meal. It is Christ. It is his perfect life. It is his love for you, that he has redeemed you and he has sanctified you. If you're trusting in Christ for salvation and you find yourself struggling against some sin, I encourage you to repent of it once again in that time of examination that we'll have and to observe this means of grace and the knowledge of, of, and joy of God's faithfulness. So in a few moments, I'm going to invite the praise team up and they'll lead us in a song. And while they lead us in that song, which we should all take part in, we should all sing and worship God in that song as well, you'll have an opportunity during that time to come up and to take a piece of bread and one of the cups of the fruit of the vine. You'll take both coming down this center aisle here and then filing back out along the side. you can partake of each element as soon as you come and get it out of the tray, or you can take them back to your seat and take them during the song, whatever feels best to you. Just know that we won't all be doing it at the exact same time. So also, when Jesus instituted this act of worship on the night that he was betrayed, he prayed over the bread before they shared it together. Then he prayed over the cup before they shared that together. We just read that back in Matthew or Mark chapter 12 um so we also will pray and then read some scripture together before we take the elements and then the band will lead us in worshiping through a song and you could come forward at some point during that time to take the elements before we read scripture together and before i ask god to bless the elements though we're going to spend some time in silent prayer again this is a time of self-examination if you are a christian you know the lord you have the holy spirit and so in this time of examination you know pray and ask god to search your heart that you might be taking this meal, this covenant meal, as a faithful and blessed uh, child of his. Not that you're perfect to take it, but that your Savior is perfect and you're trusting in a perfect Savior. So after about 60 seconds of praying uh, silently, I'll pray out loud and thank God for the, for the elements. And then we'll read scripture together. But let's all pray.